Well, we are now in week seven of the book of Philippians, and the central theme that we keep coming back to in Philippians is this idea of God being at work in us, making us more like Christ. Theological word there is sanctification. Well, last week, John did a great job of preaching for us, and he talked about discipleship in the book of Philippians and about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and they were two exceptional examples of people who were being made more like Christ. And we learned that to be a disciple of of Jesus Christ, to be a great disciple of Jesus Christ is not about looking impressive or being impressive to other people, but it is about people who are faithful, available, and teachable. And each of these attributes makes us more moldable by God, more useful for his kingdom, so that we might make disciples of all nations. Well, this week we carry on um, in the book of Philippians in the third chapter, and we're going to dive deeper into the work that Christ is doing in us. So I invite you to hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us from Philippians chapter three, verse one through three. It says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord, It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul starts off this section with a call to rejoice, which is something that he does a lot. And to rejoice, not just this general vague idea of rejoicing, but rejoice in what God is doing. And this is an important thing for them. He says it's a safeguard because he knows that they are dealing with challenges. They're dealing with persecution and and things that make it difficult sometimes to rejoice. But here Paul pivots away. Paul pivots away from talking about persecution and he gets into something that is going on here. There's this new threat that is on the doorstep. Watch out, he says. Be alert. Now, persecutions don't tend to worry Paul too much. He knows they're difficult. He knows their reality. He knows that they must rely on Christ and they must rejoice in the midst of them. But there's one thing that really does seem to concern Paul, maybe even worry him and that is false teaching. Paul is worried about people being out there who are teaching things that are contrary to the gospel. So right now what he's talking about, he's focused on this idea of circumcision. Now Paul isn't saying that circumcision is wrong. He knows that it is a central part of what it means to be an Israelite, living in covenant with God. The problem with circumcision here is that some people are saying, well, in order to be a Christian, in order to be a follower of Jesus, in order to be a part of God's family, you have to become Jewish, you have to convert, you have to obey every single law in the Old Testament, and you need to be circumcised no matter what. Now, if you remember, Philippi was a very um, Roman city, a very Gentile city. There were very, very few Jews within the city there. And the church itself is probably almost entirely a Gentile church. So this is probably not a big issue that is happening already at the church in Philippi because, again, this is mainly Gentile believers and it's, it's Jewish believers coming in, so Jewish followers of Jesus, to be specific. Some are coming into different churches and they're saying, nope, this is what you have to do. This is what you must do. So Paul is saying, whether you're dealing with this yet or not, it's something you need to be aware of, you need to keep your eyes open, because it might come to you. 
Well, if you read Paul's letters and you look at Paul's life, you realize that he was a very passionate guy, and we see that in the section for today that we're reading. As Paul is talking about some folks who are um, very strict in their following of certain rules and in their inter- interpretation of rules and trying to force other people to do them, he uses some strong words to describe these people. He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Now, whether it's 21st century United States or 1st century Israel, calling someone a dog is a pretty big insult. But it was especially bad back then. So they weren't talking about, you know, calling someone like a Labrador retriever or like a cute, you know, beagle or something like that. What they're talking about is filthy, rabid street dogs. Yeah. Despicable diseased, dangerous, and a key word, unclean. It was a deep insult, and it was an insult that some people would use in in that church or other churches to describe Gentiles. But Paul is using it to describe some of his fellow Jewish Christians who are demanding that Gentile believers obey their laws. So why? Why such strong words? Because, I mean, he kind of gets into name-calling, right? They're dogs, they're evildoers, they're mutilators of the flesh. He's really calling these guys out with some strong, strong language. So why? Why is he so harsh here? Well, the heart of the issue, again, is not even necessarily about circumcision. But it's in verse three. He says, we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. The people who he was talking about aren't just saying, well, here's some things that we should do because we're, we're followers of Jesus. These are people who are putting confidence in the works of their own flesh rather than putting their confidence in the all-sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. They were proud of their observance of the rules. They're trying to force others to not only obey Scripture but to obey their specific interpretation of Scripture as well. We're told to put our confidence and our hope in Jesus rather than our good works, rather than our abilities, rather than in our upbringing and in our ancestry. So we sing the song, In Christ Alone, and when we sing it, we mean it. It's not Christ plus this laundry list of all these other things that we're going to do. Well, Paul really wants to drive the point home, so he carries on. Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on law, faultless. He's saying if anyone could ever do enough to earn God's grace, if anyone could ever do enough to impress God and have confidence, it's me and he's got this laundry list of all these things. Circumcised on the eighth day. Yeah, you're talking about circumcision? I'm not just telling people that they don't have to do it. I'm one who was circumcised, and I'm saying they don't have to do it. Circumcised, marked as a child of God, part of God's covenant with Abraham. He was an Israelite, one of God's chosen people. He's part of the family of God. Then he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm going, okay, 
Okay, why is that an important thing? We look at Deuteronomy 33, and it talks about the, the, the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was especially loved by God. And when you look at the history of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin was one that tended to be a lot more faithful than some of the others. Some of the others were off worshiping these false gods and falling in line with all them. Well, the Benjaminites were faithful, and they stayed. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, there's a couple different ways that that could be understood, like, you know, like a a man's man, like a real man, or a Hebrew of Hebrews. I think what it means is that he's a Hebrew of Hebrew parents, okay? So, one of the things about the world at that point is you had this Hellenization, right? You had kind of Romanization, I guess, is another Greek Greekanization? I don't know, making things more Greek. Um, So, as there's Jewish people around the world, they are learning... um, these different languages because those are the, those are the languages of, of the world. Well, sometimes what was happening is people were even in their worship, worshiping in Greek or worshiping in, in these other languages. Paul's going, no, 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 no. I even worship in Hebrew. He's staying true, he's staying faithful. When others have been assimilated into Greek culture, Paul was pure even in his language. He also calls himself a Pharisee. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard the word Pharisee. There's Pharisees and Sadducees. And a Pharisee, what that means is a separated one. One who is separate from the impure and the unclean culture. They had strict adherence to even the smallest detail of the law. He also says that he is zealous for God. He hunted down these blasphemers. Others wrung their hands, others complained because it was so terrible. If it was today, those would be the people who were posting stuff on Facebook about how terrible everyone is. But he doesn't just do that, he goes after people. He is so zealous for what God, he thinks God wants him to do, he is out hunting down Christians. When it comes to righteousness, flawless at following the law. Paul had every human reason to have confidence in his own flesh. But listen to what he says next. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says this big, long laundry list, all these impressive things that I was so impressed by, that others have been so impressed by, these things that I put so much value in, these things that I thought were proving my worth, these things that I thought were bringing me closer to God, were actually dragging me away. Several years ago, when I was doing youth ministry, we took... um, Throughout the summer, we would take a few beach trips because, you know, you hop in the car, you go 30 minutes to the beach. So we'd take the kids down to the beach and we'd go out swimming and such. So one such summer afternoon, I had a group of kids and we're out there swimming, um, swimming in the ocean. And it was fun having a good time. We don't go out too far, but, you know, we have a good time. And they were all pretty strong swimmers. Now, one of the difficulties of being at the beach is you've heard of, you've heard of like rip currents, right? Where the, where the current, it's this narrow current, it'll, it'll pull you back out to sea. Well, that really wasn't the big issue for us. The frustrating kind of irritating issue was just the fact that the current, the ocean, kind of pulls you down shore a little bit. You know, you don't notice that you're out there for 15 minutes and then you're like 100 yards down the beach. So it's not really that big of a deal, but you go, okay, well, I got to, you know, hop out of the water and walk back up to the beach to get where our towels are and stuff, and then you get back in. 
Well, the challenge for us that day is that we were close to a jetty. Now, a jetty, you can see in the picture here, is like this, this, uh, this big pile, long pile of rocks. This one doesn't go out too far, but some of them will go, you know, 50, 100 yards out, out into the water. Well, you couple the fact that there's a jetty with the fact that there's a current, and that current is pulling you down. Well, we got out in the water on the wrong side of the jetty. So we're out in the water, I have all these kids, there's probably, you know, five or six kids with me, we're out there swimming, and I look over and I realize, oh my gosh, this current is pulling us toward the jetty. Now, you can see the water kind of crashing into those, well, there's times when it is really crashing into those when the waves are coming in. You don't want to be there. So I kept my cool, I kept my calm, went, you know what, we'll just swim around the jetty, we'll be fine. So we start swimming around the jetty, and then I look up, and it's like Baywatch on the beach right? There's like lifeguards swarming onto the beach, you know, ATVs pulling up, trucks pulling up, guys running into the water. There's like four, five, six lifeguards tearing out, booking it out to where we are on the water. So they come out, they swim out to us, you know, again, there's like a few more kids and people than, than lifeguards, but they have the little floaty thing and they're saving people. I'm like, no, I'm good, I'm fine, you know, I'll, I'll make it back in. And I start swimming and what happens? My leg starts to cramp up. So I'm like quietly like trying to stretch this thing out going, don't let them know they don't need to save me, I'm fine, okay? I'm gonna be totally fine. So we get back to shore, everything is good. We told the parents what had happened and all that kind of stuff. So we get back, everything is fine. Now, the greatest swimmer of our generation and possibly of all time is Michael Phelps. Now, if Michael Phelps had been out there with us that day, it would have been absolutely no issue for him. He would have just gone right around. He probably could have like gone the opposite direction and just smoked that current. It would have been completely fine right? However, say you take Michael Phelps and he's on a boat and there's a hurricane and he is shipwrecked and he is out there swimming and he is lost at sea. Even Michael Phelps would need a Coast Guard helicopter and a rescue swimmer to come and to save him. Now imagine if that rescue swimmer is, is up in his helicopter and he's looking down at Michael Phelps and he looks up and he sees this. He sees Michael Phelps holding all 23 of his Medals. <laughs> Drop the stupid medals. I can't save you that way. I don't care how fast you can swim 10 lengths of the pool. Those medals are only going to drag us both down in this hurricane. Well, if Paul is the Michael Phelps of obeying God in the first century of Israel, I and the guy lugging around a bunch of plastic participation trophies. Let that sink in. And I'm clinging to those trophies. I've got these, look at these, look at these trophies that I have, look how impressive they are. Plastic, silly, I'm no Michael Phelps. But I'm clinging to them, these are what is really important. Utterly convinced that they matter. Paul says if anyone has reasons to have confidence in their pedigree, in their ability to be holy, it's me but I know it's all nonsense. I thought that all that stuff mattered before, but I was quite literally dead wrong. But Paul doesn't just lay down his trophies. Look closer at what he said. Philippians 3.8 again. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now the word for garbage there, the Greek word there is skubala. Um, now, when, when they translate it as garbage, that's kind of a dainty, clean way of saying it. It is filth. It is quite literally dung. 
Now, apparently, scubala isn't even just dung or poop or anything like that, some other cute word that we try and use. What Paul uses here, it sounds like Paul is actually using some kind of PG-13 language to describe it, okay? He's getting very graphic, he's getting a little bit rude, it's kind of a vulgar word. Well, that is how Paul views those things. Remember all those medals that he had hung around his neck, all the impressive things, Pharisee, Israelite, Benjaminite, all these great things about him. He's going, that's what it is. Refuse, dung, filth. He wore it as a badge of honor. Whenever we take our dog on a walk, no matter what you do, no matter how much preparation you give her beforehand, you know, you're about to go on the walk, you say, okay, Maddie, go out and go to the bathroom, and she goes to the bathroom, she comes back in, and then you get about five minutes into the walk, and what does she do? She goes to the bathroom while we're on the walk. So we have this bag. I always tie a bag onto the leash, and then we, and we take it, and you, you pick it up, and you have to bring it with you, okay? Which is awful, and it's terrible, and it's nasty, and it stinks, and you try and tighten it up as tight as you can, and then you carry it home and find a trash can as quickly as you can. So imagine, and no, I don't have any pictures of that. Um, imagine if I came home from that walk proudly carrying that bag of poop. And not only that, but I come to church the next day and I've got it hung around my neck. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be gross. I'm sorry to be graphic. But that's what Paul is talking about here. He wore it as a badge of honor. Now he's going, I had a bag of dung around my neck saying, look how impressive and holy I am. Now again, Paul is not saying that circumcision is bad or that it's sinful. He's not saying that following God's law, whether Old Testament or New Testament, is worthless. That key phrase in the passage is confidence. God has warned us that I must not put my confidence in the works of the flesh. Even if those works of the flesh look holy and they look righteous and they look pious and they look impressive to other people. If I'm counting on my works to save me, or if I believe that they make me look impressive to God, there's a couple things that happen there. One thing that happens there is that I tend to take pride in myself. Look at these great things that I have done. I might not say it, but I'm sure thinking it. And then you unfairly judge others. Well, look at the things that they are not doing. Look at the bad things that they are doing. So then when we're living this way, as we're puffing ourselves up, as we're pushing other people down, if you have any humility, any decency to yourself, you also come to a point where you go, yeah, but, okay, but is that enough? You know, where is that line? Where is that invisible line? Have I crossed that line? Have I done enough to gain my salvation? Have I done enough to keep my salvation? Okay, then I look at my sins and I go, well, well, have I done enough sins that I've lost it for today? And do I need to gain it back? Well, are there certain sins that are gonna make me lose my salvation and others that aren't? And then you get so wrapped up in all these things, we're putting so much value in these works of righteousness and avoiding this sin that we're putting confidence in ourselves and not confidence in God. Instead, when we put our confidence in the righteousness, not of Jeff, but I put my righteousness in the confidence in the righteousness of Christ, I have blessed assurance. That my salvation, that my identity as a child of God is found in the work of Jesus rather than my efforts, because guess what? My efforts, your efforts, even Paul's efforts will fall embarrassingly short every single time. Now, as we're talking through this, some of you might be thinking, okay, yeah, but 
then do our good deeds and our obedience not matter? Does God not care? Is he saying, eh, who cares? Does sin not matter? Why not just then accept Jesus and eat, drink, and be merry, and do whatever you want? Well, listen to what comes immediately after this. This time for the message version of the Bible. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. I have dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind. That comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so that I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to the point of death. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. God is calling us to cast aside the self-righteous pride. See, that's the big issue that Paul was dealing with. Cast aside the self-righteous pride of good works so that we can fully embrace Christ. See, God's deep desire for us is that we would know Christ and be known by him, that we would experience true righteousness and abundant life. For decades, for many decades, Paul was utterly convinced that by his birthright, by his fanatical devotion to obeying the law, and by his ferocious commitment to destroying the church, he felt that he was honoring God and he was guaranteeing his place in the kingdom. Well, something that God revealed to Paul and something that we must understand is that the works of God can get in the way of the work of God. You get what I'm saying there? The works that we think we're doing for God can completely block, can get in the way of the work of God. Our so-called good works, the things that we do to impress God and others, they tend to and will, not just tend to, they will harden our hearts and stand in the way of the work of God. The work that he wants to do in me and the work that he wants to do through me. Do you remember the key verse that we've been that we really keep coming back to? Anybody remember the, the, the kind of main verse we've been talking about in Philippians here? I know this is a pop quiz and I apologize for that. Being confident of this, so this is Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Part of our problem is that we have confused exactly what it is that Christ wants to do in us. The good work that Christ began in us was not to make us sin less often. That was not the good work that God began in us, that Christ began in us. And it wasn't even that the good work that he wants to do in us is that eventually we will stop sinning altogether. The good work that God began in us is to make us holy. The good work that God began in us is to make us more like Christ. Set apart, totally devoted to God and to his purposes. Now sin devastates the work of God in my life. And one of the most devastating sins is pride. But what we're talking about here is so much more than just avoiding sin. What Paul went through and what each one of us must go through is a radical redirection from the life that we were living. A radical redirection from the life that we are so tempted to live in the church today. 
Now here's an important thing, don't miss out on this. There's no room in these verses anywhere for cheap grace or lazy faith. As we'll read next week, Philippians 3, 13 to 14, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What Christ is calling us to is not an easy, comfortable life, but it is a life of surpassing joy and life and amazing living hope. It is knowing and being known by Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that although we can never earn your grace, although we can never earn our place in your kingdom, you have given us grace, you've called us your children. You've said that when we put our faith in you, when we receive the gift that you have given to us, we become your children. You adopt us, you bring us in, we are forever yours. Lord, help me, help each of us to cast off pride and arrogance and feeling that we've done any of this on our own, that we could ever do any of this on our own. Lord, help us to receive your grace, to lay down our medals, to throw them away, to be embraced by you. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.